Live from our man caves in Virginia Beach, this is MLS Gone Wild, where Blem and Mike D bring you the latest news, rumors, analytics, predictions, and all things MLS and American soccer. Let's get it going, Blem. Hello and welcome to MLS Gone Wild, Season 3, Episode 18. This is your host, Blem. Listeners, welcome back for another episode. Thank you for joining us. This is your co-host, Mike D. Week 18 of the 2021 MLS season is in the books, and just like every other week, it didn't make any freaking sense. But we wouldn't want it any other way. The crew have now lost three straight matches for the first time since July of 2019. The New England Revolution continue to get results, even without Carlos Hill, and now sit 10 points ahead of second place Orlando City in the East. According to $15 million man Ezekiel Barco, Atlanta United are playing with, and I quote, pure happiness under interim head coach Rob Valentino. But is he the guy? Mark Anthony Kay and Jeremy Abobasi made their debuts for their new MLS clubs. We'll take a look at how they did. All that and more coming up in just a minute. But Mike D, you know what's first. Goals of the week. Gustavo Bo. Daniel Shallowy and Ola Kamara all scored during the double game week to keep pace atop the golden boot race. That rhymed a little bit. 17-year-old Philadelphia Union homegrown Paxton Aronson scored his first MLS goal and his first MLS start. And, well, there were 67 other goals scored in this jam-packed double game week. What was your goal of the week and why? My goal of the week comes from the Portland Timbers against RSL game in the 62nd minute. Sebastian Blanco to Felipe Mora. So Sebastian Blanco has played in eight games this season and hasn't seen a start yet since injury last year. He's told only 166 minutes over those eight games and has two assists. Imagine what could be for him in the Timbers this season if he would have been healthy throughout that time. But I digress. Blanco receives the ball on a pass from Claudio Bravo about 25 or 30 yards outside of the 18 on the left-hand side of the pitch. He takes a prep touch, getting the ball outside of his feet, picks his head up, and as soon as he does, him and Felipe Moore make a connection in their minds almost instantaneously. Moore is at the top of the 18 in this moment, right in front of the last uh, last defender, uh, last center back. And as soon as Blanco picks his his head up, looking for an option, Moore starts a diagonal run, one of the most dangerous runs in the game, splitting Dakovic and Justin Glad, and the ball is played looping right over the top to link up with Mora. Moore receives the ball a little bit wonky. Uh, He takes the touch, and it kind of bounces up in the air, but his back is to goal, and um, RSL's keeper is is starting to press him because he's, like, right there on the six. And as soon as he takes his first touch, keeper starts to come out. He does almost like a pirouette and then hits it uh, to to slot it in far right stick. Um, the, the, The immediate connection from Sebastian Blanco to Felipe Moore, the run, the finish, all of it um, really equates to my goal of the week here. Yeah, perfect timing. A little bit of a wonky touch, but it was well done inside the box under pressure. And that's their new number nine. Maybe they don't need Jeremy Abobasi, but we'll digress. We'll get to that later on in the episode. Now he's with San Jose. But my goal of the week is Paxton Aronson's first MLS goal and his first MLS start. Paxton checked into the half space in front of the revs back four, opened his hips for the half turn, which shielded him from Maciel's tackle while also allowing him to face goal. Paxton then took one more prep touch to his left to unbalance Andrew Farrell and create space for the shot. And Mike D, bang! 
Paxton's first ever goal was a near post upper 90 banger past U.S. men's national team's goalkeeper, Matt Turner. Some would say he's the number one, but he hadn't conceded a non-PK goal in nine matches. All right, so get this. This is a crazy stat I saw on Twitter. Similar to his brother, Brendan, who's now with Red Bull Salzburg, both of their first MLS goals were scored on the road in NFL stadiums against U.S. men's national team goalkeepers. If, any, if he's anything like his brother, there's plenty more goals where that came from, Mike D. Yeah, I mean, what a goal for the kid. He gets his first start, and it's it's a banger. It's an absolute banger. And not only that, but the kid played well, right? I mean, and not only that, but Philadelphia was was going into the match trying to rest some guys uh, for, for an upcoming Champions or CONCACAF Champions League game. So they had two young guys playing, Paxton being one of them, and he, he definitely seized the moment. So good on him. And uh, I don't know, from, from some of the stuff, he, he, he just looks fiery. He looks fiery. He looks he, to go forward and, and just not shying away from some of these veterans. And a lot of people are saying, and I think Brendan might have even said it on our podcast when we interviewed him, that Paxton might actually be the better player. And I've seen some Philadelphia Union folks on Twitter asking, you know, what should Paxton's nickname be? Brendan has been dubbed the Medford Messi. What's Paxton? If you guys are listening to this comment, let us know what Paxton's nickname is going to be going forward. All right. Well, goal of the week is in the books but now we're going to move on to our segment all the small things where blake and i pick a moment from previous week's action that may have gone unnoticed but needs a little bit more appreciation so blake we'll start with you what's uh your all the small things for this week my all the small things this week was toronto fc's personnel change at halftime that not only rescued a point at home but ultimately earned javier perez the permanent head coaching job for toronto fc through the end of this year Ralph Preso and Achara entered the game at halftime for Toronto FC and U.S. men's national team legends Michael Bradley and Josie Altador. In regard to subbing off Michael Bradley, Perez had this to say, in quotes, tonight the team needed something different and we made the change for just the good of the team, end quote. The halftime additions of Preso and Achara proved to be pivotal in Toronto FC completing their, sec- their two-goal second-half comeback these weren't like for like substitutions. Prez noticed Bradley struggling to beat the high pressure of New York City FC and no Preso could do the job on both sides of the ball. New York City FC were also pressing their three backs higher up the pitch and Prez also knew that Achara could stretch them vertically with his speed more so than Josie Altador could do. It can't be easy to pull off two legends of the club at halftime, but head coaches get paid to make those important tactical and personnel adjustments and thanks to those adjustments, Mike D, Perez can officially call himself Toronto FC's head coach. That's my small thing that turned into a very big thing for Perez. All right. Well, well done, Toronto. Mike D, what's your small thing, man? My all the small things comes from the same game of my goal of the week, the Portland Timbers against RSL. So in this match, it came in their second goal in the 29th minute. And from a small detail that made all of the difference that led to them actually scoring it. Jose Van Rankin receives the ball, switched to the right side of the, the field in Portland's midfield and has a ton of space in front of him. So he takes advantage of that and he's going um, into the attack at, at pace and makes it all the way to ourselves final third before any pressure really gets to him in this same buildup. Um, Marvin Luria is, is making, you know, calculated timing run uh, as Rankin moves up the field and Rankin finds Marvin Luria um, and Luria's back is is to the 18 with Donnie Toya on his back so Rankin passes him the ball 
and Toya is, or excuse me, Rankin passes the ball to Luria, and with his first touch, Luria opens up and takes a big first touch away from the defender towards the midfield diagonally, where he now has vision to find Espria on the 18. Luria takes his big touch, second touches to Espria, who one touches to Yimichar, making a run off of Espria towards goal on top of the 18. Char takes his first touch, left-footed curls it in the top left corner. The whole buildup and conclusion of this goal were fantastic. But the small thing for me here to notice that doesn't happen nearly as much as I think that it should in MLS play is that first touch by Luria. His positional awareness to know that the defender's on his back and know where he needs to go, where that space is, and take the touch so perfectly in the direction that it needs to go to set up that pass to Spria was was phenomenal and and such a small detail of a player's playing ability that makes all the difference. If he doesn't take that touch at the at the weight that he takes it in the direction that he takes it, he doesn't find a spree and that goal doesn't happen. So that's for for me just magic. To add to the small things that was his spatial awareness to take that touch, Mike D, did he also take a peek over his shoulder? Oh, of course, quick peek, immediate. I mean, he knew with the with the being on the last defender like that, being on Toya, he knew that he was going to have pressure and knew that he had space over there to the right-hand side of him. So when the ball came in, boom, to the right, just just absolutely fantastic. Mike D, you were like the Picasso of soccer podcasting right there. People are going to be driving down the road. They're going to be thinking more so about this tiki-taka play from Portland rather than the red light that's in front of them. So if you're listening, please concentrate on the road or whatever you're doing. But Mike D, that was a beautiful way to paint that picture that was a Portland play. Awesome. All right, those were the small things, but let's jump to the big things and a huge issue, that being the refereeing and the crew's 3-2 loss to Atlanta United. Yes, I'm screaming. I mean, come on, two PKs awarded to Atlanta and two crew goals called back for offsides, none of which got sent to VAR for a real serious look. What, Mike D? Guys, I'm just pulling your chain. It's not the referee. It's the crew's lack of continuity, confidence, and ability to defend or score goals. That is the big issue. And the crew's three straight losses, they have conceded 11 goals and scored just five. Heading into their match versus New York City FC, the crew had the opportunity to move up to second place in the East with a win, and now the team sits in seventh place, just one point above the playoff line. Mike D, is this just a run of bad form, or should we be legitimately concerned about the Columbus crew? I think this is just a run of bad form for the crew. I think that they looked a lot better against Atlanta, and small mistakes and a little unluckiness really decided the game in that one. I mean... The two PKs that were given away, while Moreno sold the, sh- you know, he sold the crap out of them, um, there was enough contact in it f- for it to be deemed a foul, and and so the the unlucky nature there is that we don't we don't get the you know um, the the Derek Etienne Jr. goal that was that was called offside. I mean, it, it's just it's just unlucky, you know, a, a string of bad play on top of unluckiness, on top of an Atlanta team that is is just playing better really just turned out to be the recipe for disaster in this one. So um, I think that the the crew have hit a slump defensively, and it has to be, like you said, it has to be mainly in part for me due to the adversity the team has had to face with their consistent lineup, and specifically the back line. I mean, the only player that 
has been consistent in the back line as of late is Jonathan Mensah with others around him, you know, Pedro Santos dropping back into the outside back position, Keita being in and out of the center back position, uh, a fool being in and out of the lineup, you know, without this consistency in the back line where it's most important, you're not going to, you're not going to get any fluidity and you're not going to get any chemistry. So, I mean, when we saw um, in the beginning of the season, we had consistency with, with Josh Williams, with Mensa, with a fool, with uh, whoever else was, Valenzuela with Valenzuela. I mean, when we had that consistency, we were doing fine and we've done fine in the past. So I think it's unfortunate. We've been battling adversity. Not we can trying to remain unbiased. The crew have been battling adversity and it only gets worse when your back line is as banged up and, and, you know, not available as they are. So until we can get some more consistency in the back line, I foresee more goals against, which is unfortunate, but the good news is we have Jossie back. Um, and I think that if we continue to build on performances like Atlanta, where there was a little bit more urgency going forward, we'll be fine. Yeah, you talked about the continuity of the team, especially in the defense. I have a number here, 13 different combinations of the back four through the first half of this MLS season. And in this most recent game against Atlanta United, we saw Liam Frazier play back there. So let me let me just start with the back really quick. And we'll try to move this through this pretty quickly. So in the past eight games, the crew have taken a 2-0 deficit in the first half. And 10 of the 23 goals conceded this year have come in the 30th minute or earlier. I've seen a lot of players come out this week and say, hey, we need to score first. Well, yeah, but we also have to focus on not conceding a goal first as well. Like It's easy to say we need to score first, but we also need to protect our net. We saw in the FC Cincinnati game. They scored in like 23 seconds or something like that. So it starts with the defense. And we're also lacking a little bit in the midfield. Mike D, both of you and I have been high on Marlon Harrison alongside Darlington Nagby. In the Atlantic game, they didn't look great. I think they pressed a little bit higher up the pitch and they were getting split and beat uh, when they were pressuring higher up the field. And somebody like Miles Robinson is going to split them and turn what looks like passing the ball around the back into basically what looks like a counterattack because he breaks lines with his passes. So we were getting beat there. So we're missing a, a piece in the midfield as well, but Pedro Santos missing from the attack because he now has to play left back. That takes something away from the attack. And now we're in this, like, okay, do we start Harrison Afoul or Abdul Salam? And now we're going back and forth, and those guys are subbing for each other. Harrison Afoul's getting older, man. I said a couple podcasts ago, might be Abdul Salam's time, but he hasn't necessarily taken it by storm either. So that's that's just the defense for me. We don't have that consistency back there. I think Vito's coming back into health. Josh Williams is coming back into health. But yes, that's a problem. But that has been our strength over the past year, year and a half. That is what won us MLS Cup last year. So I I, I don't write off our defense. We haven't really been great offensively either. Not even last year. Like. Obviously, Lucas Elarion was an outstanding player, and Zardes gets his buckets. And our we got more production from our outside guys last year. But just looking at two quick stats really quick, we're 23rd in the league in shots per match. Keep in mind, there's 27 teams in this league. We got we record three and a half shots per match, which just isn't enough. Not good enough. We don't generate enough offense there. And then another stat, we are 26th in the league in big chances created with just 14. That's not good. So we have to find more production from our guys like Derek Etienne Jr., 
Luis Diaz. Luis Diaz, Kevin Molino. I really liked what I've seen from Alexandru Matan. He's looked really good when he's played in those very limited minutes, those minutes that you're basically killing off a game when we're down. So, like, let's let's fall into this category here, okay? So I, I put out a poll earlier, and it's asking Columbus Crew fans, are you concerned, and do they make the playoffs? So I, there's three different categories. You're concerned, and the crew still makes the playoffs. You're concerned, and the crew don't make the playoffs. or you're not concerned. This is just a run of bad form, but they still make the playoffs. Where do you fall in that poll? I'm concerned, but they make the playoffs. That's where I fall. Okay. I think, uh, yeah, I mean, like you said, we, we have the back line has been our bread and butter. The, the crew have never really been, or as of, as of late, not really been known for their offensive prowess. And Caleb Porter's not going to change his system. They're going to be this slow, methodical, build-up play kind of team. And unless he completely changes that, which I don't anticipate, the, the defense is going to be the bread and butter. So, of course, we're going to see goals getting leaked when there's that much inconsistency. So I'm concerned. I think that it's the first time that we really had to face adversity defensively on the back line like that uh, for, I mean, the last two years at least. So I think they'll figure it out. I think that he's got to be more consistent with the guys he plays back there. And, and once he is and once they figure it out, they'll be fine. Yeah, those guys just got to get healthy. But you did just remind me of a talking point that I wanted to briefly touch on. I touch on a lot is the crew playing very predictable, pattern-oriented possession soccer. And against Atlanta, we said they were playing a little bit more of, I thought at least, of a high press. And they were kind of getting after it. There was more interchanging. There were different patterns being implemented. There were guys drifting inside playing as inverted wingers like Kevin Molino. So I thought it looked better, and I thought that, Maybe Caleb Porter did stray away from his usual pattern, possession-oriented play, and he kind of let the guys play a little bit. So I'll leave it at that and hope. And it actually, and it actually, which I'm sure we're getting ready to segue into, kind of led to their downfall. It it may have, it may have. So the Five Stripes got their first win in 12 matches and first win under the tutelage of interim head coach Rob Valentino on Saturday night versus our beloved Columbus Crew. Through five matches under Valentino, Atlanta United have earned just five points, so the results may not have changed, but it seems that the mentality has. Like we said earlier, $15 million man Ezekiel Barco had this to say regarding the coach's impact so far, end quote. I think the coaching staff is giving us that freedom that we need across the front line to be able to attack. And he describes the team's mindset as, and I quote, just pure happiness. Bocanegra and Eels have come out and said they are looking to make a hire soon, but why not Valentino? Seems like he has already won the locker room and instilled some hope back into a fan base that so desperately wants to win. Mike D, do you think Atlanta would be making a mistake not hiring Valentino? I don't think they're making a mistake in not hiring him, but I think this win against Columbus and the culmination of a few things makes for an interesting decision on what they should do. So Barco has played in two of the five games under Valentino and has had an assist and two goals in two games, right? Marcelino Marino has played in all five games under him, Valentino, and has scored a goal in each of those three games consecutively. They just signed a new DP in Luis Araujo, who should bolster the attack alongside Joseph. And not to mention, Joseph Martinez has scored in back-to-back games, two under Valentino. He hasn't had a head coaching position and only worked in MLS under Frank DeBoer on his technical staff, but I'm not really sure. The the popular opinion here is probably to find someone like Tata Martino who's going to employ that or employ that that high attacking football that we've seen before from Atlanta 
But whether coincidence or not, under Valentino, they seem to be trending upward in the last five games. So there obviously was um, reports of, of Pineda from Seattle, um, you know, coming over and, and becoming the new coach. He was absent from Seattle's game last night against Tigres. So that might be signs that he's solidifying the deal with them. But this this situation that we saw where Atlanta won against the crew over the weekend is very similar to something that happened last year. When Stephen Glass was interim before Heinze came in, they destroyed D.C. United 4-0 and then went on only to win one of their next eight games and miss the playoffs for the first time. So is it a mistake? I don't know. Is it a gamble? Probably. Making a, a decision coach or a decision to hire a new head coach is always going to be up in the air. You're, you're never going to know until you know. But based on previous experience, ATL maybe wants to avoid repeating the mistake that they did last year with Stephen Glass and maybe get a new coach in there uh, faster than than in, um, than what they did with uh, Heinze. You touched on a really good point there. I think Carlos Bocanegra and Eels are concerned that, you know, if they let this ship of Valentino ride out and it's unsuccessful and they don't hire a brand new coach, whether it's Pineda or somebody of a, a bigger pedigree or whatever, it's going to fall back on them and it's going to look bad on them. The Atlanta United fan base is going to say, why didn't you make a, a new hire? But it's it's a lose-lose for them either way. You know, you, right. you can't win in that situation. But one thing I've liked about Valentino, and it might just be because he's been an assistant coach there since 2019, and I think as an assistant coach, you probably form a different bond and relationship with these players than, say, a Gabriel Heinze or a Tata Martino would form with the players themselves. I feel like you just form a different relationship. And it seems like not only is he bringing out the best of these guys on the field and really exploiting their talents by the style of play that he's employing, deploying, I mean, but he's also winning the locker room with these quotes that we just saw from one of the most expensive transfers in MLS history, Ezekiel Barco. He's thrilled. And Valentino came out and said midweek, he's like, what am I supposed to teach this guy? This guy can literally do everything for us. And he's like, you know, it's, it's a trade-off. I ask him to play a little bit of defense and he can go out and do whatever he wants. Right. So I think Valentino has done a really good job about reinstilling some faith not only within that fan base, but more importantly in that locker room, Joseph Martinez, Marcelino Moreno, Ezekiel Barco have all looked like they're playing more free flowing football. Look like they're having fun again. And Mike D we both know that as a footballer, that is one of the most important parts of playing well is you got to be having fun. You got to like the system and people that you're playing for. hundred percent. I think of course, with the situation that happened with Gabriel Heinze, it was almost an easy thing, right? When he left, the players are going to be more happy. And then all all Valentino has to do is kind of foster that inevitability, right? So he's he's doing that. And then I saw um, Bocanegra was talking about when they brought in Valentino that they didn't want him to make big changes. And so they just wanted him to put his tweak on things, which to your point about him trying to foster Ezekiel Barco, he doesn't have to. He says little things like, and I think it was a specific, he's like, um, if I ask, you know, you to play, you know, do this on defense, then you can go forward as, as much as you want, but just do this one thing for me on defense and then you go forward. So it's, it's just, it's been working well in, in the circumstances that they've had. And so we'll see, I guess. 
One thing you touched on, it could just be the new coach bump, but he has coached five games and he's only won one of them. And it was against a very depleted and struggling Columbus crew team. But Mikey, let's go back to what Ezekiel Barco said about Valentino really quick about giving them the freedom across the front line to be able to attack. What did you see in the crew game specifically that exemplified that freedom tactically? So you actually started to talk about it a little bit with the crew playing a little bit, maybe out of character and pressing a little bit higher up in the midfield, there was gaps there, right? And on three different occasions, you see Barco um, with the ball at his feet attacking Columbus. And, and I think two of those occasions, they were they were balls that were played from, from the back, line-breaking balls, where Ezekiel Barco is sitting higher up in the midfield in a pocket of space where he turns and immediately starts running at Columbus. So the first, the first of these three different plays where you see Ezekiel Barco dashing up the field with the ball at his foot resulted in the combination play with Bello where he scored. The second one resulted in the PK drawn by Moreno. And the third resulted in another combination play with Moreno that led to a shot that was definitely going in if it was not for the wonder save by Eloy Room. So aside from that, you know, they they seem to be what I noticed from the game. They were possessing the ball, you know, whether it was in the defensive third or wherever, they seem to be possessing the ball, possessing the ball, possessing the ball, and then finding that that line breaking ball through the midfield. And as soon as they found that line breaking pass, the midfielder immediately turned and everybody was going forward. And it looked almost the same as the Miggy Joseph Atlanta that we saw in, in 2017. So that's I think they were just getting back to kind of their old way and it, it looked really good at times yeah early season Atlanta United under Gabriel Heinze was a possession dominant team and they still are a, they still keep possession more than a lot of teams in the league but now they're looking to exploit the spaces going forward as well and with a guy like I said earlier like Miles Robinson he's able to turn just possession into attack in a split second but we said Maybe last year, maybe the beginning of this year, but Ezekiel Barco, the way that he goes is the way that Atlanta goes. And he was there for all the success for Atlanta United. And right. I tweeted out a picture of his heat map earlier this year as opposed to 2018-2019. He's affecting the game this year from a deeper lying role than he has in the past. And he completes nearly 10 progressive carries and over five progressive passes per 90. So what does that mean? A lot of times not not us as viewers or people that are doing the podcast, but the coaching and the technical staff of Atlanta have tried to deploy Barco as a winger. And he's not a winger. He's a guy that wants to play in the half spaces in the middle. And he wants that freedom to play. And just like we saw with Atlanta when they won MLS Cup in their second year, that team was transition-oriented. We're counterattacking and we're getting down your throat. And not saying that, we're just using this past game against Columbus as an example. They didn't necessarily counterattack us, but Ezekiel Barco was finding those half spaces, turning and running at the Columbus crew. And that is the most dangerous Ezekiel Barco has looked in a year, maybe yeah. more, to be honest with you. Ezekiel Barco is, was, and will be the X factor going forward for Atlanta if they want to make a playoff push. You agree? I agree. I agree. I mean, Moreno's playing really well, too. They have George Bello. Um, They've they've got Miles Robinson who's playing really well. They their their team is Joseph Martinez is coming. Like I said, all these guys, you know, they they have the recipe. Now they just need to execute. And we saw what it can be against the former MLS Cup champion in last week's game. Yep. 
So enough of the teams competing for playoff spots. Let's talk about the supporter shield leaders and the team 10 points clear of second place in the East, the New England Revolution. Through 19 matches, the Revolution are the only team earning over two points per game and are on pace with the 2019 LAFC team who earned 72 points at a 2.12 points per game basis. What makes this Revs team so dominant? And can you see them earning 32 of a possible 45 remaining points to match LAFC's 2019 record? This one's simple, right? They have a good team from front to back. They have a coach who has proven to win. Not to mention, they find ways to win even when their key players are missing. They have the best playmaker in MLS in Carl's Hill. They have Gustavo Bo, who's crushing it this year with 11 goals compared to his five last year. Tejon Buchanan, who's going to take guys on and create opportunities with pace. And Matt Turner in goal, who's one of the best goalkeepers in MLS, tied for seventh in the league in saves. So that's the summary of this. But before Carlos Hill went down with an injury, I would have said 100% yes, that they that they would have they would have hit 32 of the possible 45 remaining points. Now that we're halfway through, there's a lot of football left to be played. And they're going to be taking extra special care of him in order to ensure that he is there and ready when the Revs need him. That's always just going to be looming now for the rest of the season, depending on how severe it is and when he actually comes back, right? Can the guys that they have on the bench step up? I mean, we saw it. We saw it against Philadelphia. You know, Philadelphia obviously was playing um, some guys off the bench as well. But, you know, Matt Polster and Martial in the midfield stepped up and played well. Um but when you have someone who is directly responsible for f- at least 15 of your 35 goals and he goes down midway through the season and we don't really know what, what that means, I cannot help but imagine that their productivity is, is going to diminish. 15 of their 35. Just him. Hey, a lot of the Revs fans, they think you're capping, Mike D, because... 73% of the people that voted on our poll earlier regarding how many points the Revolution will accumulate through the rest of the season total. The Revs fans think that they're going to land in between the 66 and 72 point mark. If So if they get to the 72, that is the record tied along LAFC. So 73% of those folks think they land in between 66 and 72 points. So yes, it is hard to tell without Carlos Hill their most important player, the MVP, the guy that's on record to possibly, the guy that's on pace to set the record for assists in MLS history. Like, that's crazy. But just a little bit of analysis about the revolution because we haven't done it a whole lot. And I know people were on extra time heavy getting on them about not talking about the revs because for me, I think the revs are a very blue-collar team. They go underappreciated because all you talk about is Carlos Hill and Gustavo Bo. But in eight, of the Revs league high 12 wins, they have tied or lost the possession battle. They also rank 17th in passes completed per 90. So this isn't a team that needs the ball to beat you. They have created the most big chances and scored the most goals in MLS so far. And Mike D that is offensive efficiency. And just to drop some numbers on you real quick, Gustavo Bo leads the golden boot race with 11 goals. He's tied obviously, um, but he is over exceeding what his expected goals is. So he has 11. His expected goals is 7.2. Adam Buxa, some guy that we don't talk about a whole lot. They play a two-striker system. He's got eight goals, and he's one of the biggest aerial threats in the league. Not to mention, before you go forward, 
He's got eight goals, and he's sitting third right now in the league for missed opportunities. Yeah, so if you capitalize on those opportunities, he might be the golden boot winner so far. He might be the leader. So you got these two guys that have 19 goals just up top, and you got this guy behind him, Carlos Hill, feeding him 11 assists on 86 key passes. Like, they've scored 35 goals, and he's got 86 key passes. How many, how many are they missing, Mike D? My goodness. But then you got guys like Tejon Buchanan, who's now rumored to be going to maybe the Bundesliga and maybe the English Championship. But he's one of the X factors for the Revs as well. He's got great speed and technical ability. He's fiery. He'll take anybody on. You've got that guy. And then you talked about Matt Turner. You talked about Matt Turner. A couple of guys you didn't talk about was Brandon By and Dewan Jones at the fullback positions. They love to get forward. And Mike D, you know, we talked earlier in the year when it was Nashville and Seattle and Orlando that were all still unbeaten. And what did they all have in common? What did they all have in common, Chuck? The double pivot. And guess what? <laughs> New England also has, baby. Matt Polster, Masio running the double pivot. So they provide that coverage. So, man, I'm I'm high on this Revs team. They're a blue-collar team. They've got guys that are role players that can get the job done. And they've got a coach that's won five MLS Cups and took over the position when they were in last place in 2019. In a year's, in a year's worth of coaching, they made it to the Eastern Conference Finals and only lost to Columbus Crew 1-0. If they would have won that game, they would have went to the finals. And now look at them. They're the only team with more than two points per game. First team to 40 points. Highest scoring team in MLS. Hard to see these guys not tying the record at 72 points. I think they get it done. I think they get to 72. Put that on the record, Mike D. We'll see. We'll see. That, it's going to be a historical thing to watch throughout the rest of the season. It's going to be something to watch. Yeah. Listen. Listeners, we're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors, Added Time Outfitters. Stick around because after the break, we're going to discuss how Mark Anthony Kay and Jeremy Abobasi did in their debuts for their new MLS clubs. We'll be back in 60 seconds. We all love the beautiful game. We spend countless hours watching, tweeting, discussing, playing, and talking about the sport. And we all have our favorite memories when our teams made history. Moments like Liverpool's miracle in Istanbul or Celtic's 2-1 triumph over arguably the best Barca side ever. Those moments that keep us coming back for more. But what if you could carry those moments with you all the time? At a time, Outfitters creates soccer-inspired wristbands to let you wear those memories on your wrist. Each reversible elastic design gives supporters of the beautiful game a unique way to rep their favorite team in any setting. With wristbands for your favorite teams from across Europe, the USA, and beyond, each added time design incorporates a 90-minute story from that famous match. Check out all 24 of Added Time Outfitters' current designs on the web at www.addedtime.com or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Added Time Outfitters. Welcome back to Season 3, Episode 18 of MLS Gone Wild. Head over to AddedTimeOutfitters.com for all your soccer-inspired wristbands and apparel. Use code GONEWILD at checkout for 10% off your entire order. There were a number of incoming transfers across MLS over the past week, but today we are going to focus on the two blockbuster trades within MLS. Mark Anthony Kay was traded to the Colorado Rapids from LAFC for $1 million in GAM. And Jeremy Abobasi was traded to San Jose Earthquakes from the Portland Timbers for a little over $1 million, I believe, in GAM. Both of these guys made their debuts with their new clubs over the weekend. 
Let's start in the midfield, Mike D, where we are both the most comfortable. How do you think Mark Anthony K did in his debut for the Rapids? I mean, I think he did exceptional. He earned Team of the Week spot, so that should be enough of an explanation. I should just cut it right off right there, yeah? So, uh, and when he went the full 90, four key passes, most in the game, completed 88% of his passes, second only to Rapids midfielder staple, Jack Price, and he was instrumental in helping hold SKC to their first game all season without a shot on goal. That's mic drop right there. Yeah, so I, I'll just build off that hype train right there, Mike D. So when we saw him in LAFC, we saw him play in more of a structured defensive midfield role alongside a Twesta. He would get forward a little bit, but my God, in, this, in his Rapids debut, he played more of an advanced role than I'd ever seen him for LAFC. So you touched a little bit on his four key passes. So he had two key passes to Barrios out of the midfield. The first one was out of transition, half turn, vertical ball forward. Next one got the ball vertical or half turn, vertical ball forward. And all four of his key passes, they all happened in three touches or less. So he was very good in transition for the Rapids, uh, getting the ball, turning, and quickly making a decision, not only knowing that he has the space to turn, but knowing that he has the space to play the ball forward. He also was in such an advanced role that there were times where he was literally the furthest guy up the field for the Rapids. One of his other key passes came off of a diagonal run that he made off of the last defender, took a big touch into space, and then played a seven ball across. And then his other key pass, he made a diagonal run to the left corner and then one-timed it back across for a key pass there. So he's great on the half turn for the Rapids. He looked really important in transition. And his ability to play vertically and connect the back to the front for them was really, really impressive for me. And Mike, we speculated two podcasts ago about, okay, well, how are they going to line up with him and Kellen Acosta? Who's going to get bumped out of the lineup or whatever, but he put up a hell of a performance, unfortunately in a zero zero tie against sporting Kansas city. But that was a great performance from Mark Anthony K man. He looked every bit worth the $1 million of game that they paid for. him. Oh yeah. Colorado won that trade and he's only going to continue to get better. It's almost as if LAFC had such a good team, especially in the midfield that he was so locked into to performing a duty that maybe, not to say that Colorado's not good, but he's being transitioned a little bit, like you said, higher up the field, and he's going to get a little, little bit more freedom to well, to go forward. While he can play higher up the field, which we just saw, I just I touched on when he was at LAFC, he could play in that double pivot or whatever. Later in the game, he did drop into the double pivot along Jack Price. So he's versatile in that midfield and – with Kellen Acosta continuing with his success with the U.S. men's national team, there are slowly rumors starting to swirl that maybe Kellen's going to look. He's only 26, I believe. Maybe he'll get a look from Europe. And then Cole Bassett as well. He's the guy that plays higher up in that midfield for the Colorado Rapids, and he even lined up at forward. So there may be some vacancies in the Colorado Rapids midfield, and they could have been looking forward to that already. Not looking forward to that, but preparing for that and bring in Mark Anthony Kay. And it looked like he can do both the attacking job and the defensive job for Colorado. Get you a man who can do both. What? 
That's right. All right, Mike D, let's move on to J-Bo, man. It wasn't a lot to pick away. He came off off the bench in the 36th minute, I believe, so he only played 54 minutes. What would you take away from his initial debut for the San Jose Earthquakes? Yeah, I mean, you said it. 54 minutes played, two shots on tar- or two shots on goal. Uh, one was on target, one was off target. One chance created, to- uh, 22 total touches, 75% success pass rate. Not a bad performance, especially in a short turnaround, less than a week. New guys in the new system and a new coach, new everything. Just not quite as good in comparison to Mark Anthony K. I, I saw he did an interview where he said uh, this trade to San Jose is something he's really looking forward to because he's he's had to play a lot of different position positions in his in his recent um, with his recent team or teams, and he's really looking now because he's at a portion of his career where he needs to solidify himself in one position and be really good at that. And he said that San Jose is also really invested in that same thought process. So it's exciting to see that he's going to be more solidified. And he said that he was excited based on the interview that I saw um, that they're, they're willing to put that trust into him and, and that effort to help him solidify himself there. I think he'll be fine. I mean, he's got four goals this season and well, that's not a whole lot. Um, I think the the, la- the last highest goal-scoring season he had was eight goals. And so uh, he, he's doing well for himself, and I think he'll he'll be just fine with San Jose, but he'll just need a little bit more time. It just wasn't as, as spectacular of a performance that Mark Anthony Kay was for Colorado. Yeah, it's his debut. He's got plenty more time. We're halfway through the season. I can't help but think that he won't make an impact for the San Jose Earthquakes team alongside Cade Cow and Espinoza with Shofis behind them. I think that that's a pretty good front three with a 10 behind him. So I'm looking forward to that. But J-Bo has done a really good job throughout his career, barring the injuries, the inconsistency, the playing outside of his natural position with the 26 goals and eight assists throughout his a little over four seasons. So the production level is there. They just have to play him in the right way. He does really well in build-up play. He makes really good runs. He took a couple really good shots in this game, I I will say that. Like, he looked decent there. He had one key pass. But early returns, it's really hard to judge on just this one match for him. The game was technically already won when he, you know, they were already up 2-0 when he came on to the pitch. So San Jose really didn't have to push forward and he wasn't asked to do a whole lot of things. But one thing I do also like about Jabo is that similar to Giassi Zardes, he, his work rate is really, really high and he will work back on defense as well and help you cover and help you press and all those things. So I think San Jose got themselves a good one. I hope that they win this trade. Portland's got their guys. So there's no way that they're necessarily losing the trade because they already got their knees. and Mora for their number nines, but I hope that Jeremy Bobasi and the San Jose Earthquakes really win this trade, and I hope Jeremy Bobasi leads them to the playoffs, and he's only 24, so say he gets some goals this year, plays really well, young enough to get a move, young enough to start looking into possibly the U.S. men's national team picture. We don't know. He didn't get called up for the Olympics, which was unfortunate, but if he gets some success here, we could see him dress up for the, the Stars and Stripes. I'd like to see that. I like to see that. A lot of guys. A lot of guys. A lot of competition. A lot of young guys. So there is number nine's kind of open, but we won't big, get into big the whole, take there. It is a big take. You know, it's a big take at the end of the episode because probably, nobody's probably listening at this point. No, it's safe. It's safe. Come on. 
I hope people are listening. All right, but folks, this is going to be a quicker episode for Mike D and I. Mike D's in school. Mike D, what are you in school for? Tell the folks, man. Dedicated. Uh, I'm in school right now. I'm taking an esports certificate program at the University of California, Irvine. This is not an ad, by the way. So I have class at it's eight. It's almost 8 p.m. Eastern time here in Virginia Beach. So little quick episode to stay on track, talk about our favorite sport and our favorite league, and then off to class. All right, well, Mikey, I'm not going to keep you any longer. Listeners, thank you for listening to MLS Gone Wild Season 3, Episode 18. Please head over to wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe, rate, review, follow us on social media, MLS Gone Wild, everywhere you look. Even TikTok, you'll probably see me singing, which a lot of my coworkers have found recently because their algorithm is just messing with me. Super embarrassing. But follow us, subscribe, do all those things. And guys, watch the League's Cup because Seattle just won last night. Welcome back, Nico Ladero. We got New York City tonight, Orlando tomorrow night, and a full slate of games this weekend. So you guys enjoy. We'll catch you guys next week. And please stay cool because it is hot as hell here. Y'all take care of each other. Peace.